This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael. Now, crank it up. What's up there, Grown Up Rock listeners? This week, we bring you a special interview episode with the guys in Rough Cut, guitarist Chris Hager, drummer Dave Alford, and new singer Stephen St. James. We'll get into the band's history, the two Warner Brother albums that the band released, and what the band has planned for the future. This is going to be a fun episode. Rough Cut was formed on the Sunset Strip in the early 80s by drummer Dave Alford and Jakey Lee, who had just left another Sunset Strip band called Mickey Rat, which later went on to become Rat. Together with singer Paul Shortino, keyboardist Claude Schnell, and bassist Joey Cristofanelli, they started playing out in many of the popular Sunset Strip clubs that you guys all have heard about. Eventually, guitarist Chris Hager and bassist Matt Thorne, who were also a part of Mickey Rat in the early days, joined the band as the second guitar player and bass player replacing Cristofanelli. The band was really helped out a lot by Ronnie James Dio and even managed by Ronnie's wife, Wendy Dio. They were both very instrumental in guiding the band and leading the band to a record deal with Warner Brother Records. The band over the years have had some killer musicians come and go through the band, like the before-mentioned Jakey Lee, who went on to play with Ozzy, Craig Goldie, Claude Schnell, who both ended up with Dio, Paul Shortino went on to sing in Quiet Riot and King Cobra, Amir Durak, who found success with the rock band Orgy in the mid-90s. The band now consists of singer Stephen St. James, guitarist Chris Hagar, and Darren Householder, drummer Dave Alford, and bassist Jeff Buner. I think this interview is pretty in-depth, and it's fun to hear from these guys themselves. So kick back, enjoy this interview with the guys in Rough Cut. See ya. Hey, everyone. This Rockin' Dave from Rough Cut. Hey, everybody. This is Stephen St. James. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Hager from Rough Cut, and you're listening to the Grown Up Rock Podcast. Coming at you here from Hollywood, California. Crank it up. Welcome to the Growing Up Rock Podcast, Dave Alford, Chris Hager, and Stephen St. James from the band Rough Cut. What's up, fellas? Pleasure to be here, man. 
Awesome. So we have a new lineup to talk about, and I want to find out what's happening with the band and what the plans are for the future. But first, I want to start with where we start with all the guys that come on this show. Let's talk about growing up around rock and roll. So how were you guys influenced individually as music fans? Dave, we'll start with you. What were some of those earliest bands that you were getting into, the music you were getting into when you were growing up, say, around your high school years and learning about music and rock and roll? Well, being a Beatles fan and all of that, when I was a little kid, as I wound up in high school and Led Zeppelin came to pass, I can remember being so influenced by Jimmy Page and John Bonham and all of those guys that uh, it drove me to find my own way in rock and roll, which I did. But, uh, yeah, that basically really my influences was, uh, Led Zeppelin and, you know, the Beatles and a few other bands, I'm sure. I mean, uh, yes, had played a part in that, uh, ELP played a part in that Jethro Tull, a lot of the cool seventies and eighties bands. I was a big grand funk railroad band. Now, Dave, I got to ask you, I was born in the South, and you sound Southern as hell. Where are you from, man? Shreveport, Louisiana. (laughs) Holy cow. Gulf Coast boy, just like myself. Right on. (laughs) There you go. What gave it away, (laughs) y'all? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I, I can tell instantaneously you sure as hell ain't a California boy. (laughs) <laughs> i will tell you though i was conceived in san francisco so i was drawn back to the west coast that's all good well there's something i didn't know and probably didn't want to know <laughs> <laughs> and my mom told me all about that when my father was home on leave And it was at the studio in San Francisco. How about you, Stephen? What were some of your earliest influences? I was born in New York, Bronx, New York, but we found our way here to Los Angeles, California when I was very, very young. I have two older sisters. One of them kind of fell into the hippie culture, uh, introduced me to Motown and Eric Clapton, uh, you know, uh, Cream, uh, you know, any band that was doing that sort of thing, Jefferson Starship. Uh, not Starship at the time, it was Jefferson Airplane. But uh, And then my other sister, she was uh, she was the middle of the three of us, and everything was with her was pop. Uh, by the time I got to junior high school, and most of what I grew up on, most of my influences were soul, a lot of Soul Train era type of music. I didn't start hearing rock and roll until I was about 10th grade, 11th grade. And I think one of the early songs that I remember was Rebel Rebel by David Bowie. Nice. A bunch of friends took us to see this movie, Tommy. And I remember watching Elton John doing Pinball Wizard in these 18-inch platforms. <laughs> I remember looking at the screen thinking, I want to do what that guy does for a living. You know, from there, I found my way into garage bands. Garage bands got better and better and better. So ultimately, I fell into some of these uh, Sunset Strip bands. And I think the very first one that I was in, uh, we were playing a show with an early version of Rat. And I remember meeting Chris who was a guitar player in Rat at the time, and he and I sort of became each other's fan club. And we plotted and put the band together, which we eventually did. I'll let, I'll let him continue the story, but that's my humble beginnings. Yeah, okay. So you were on the Sunset Strip for a while then. That You're not new to that yeah. at all. Okay, great. Hey, Chris, how about you? So when did you become a music fan? Listen, you know, my, my uh, 
My story is pretty mainstream, man. I came up on Alice Cooper, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Leonard Skinnerd, Led Zeppelin, of course, and there's several other I could name, but those were my uh, biggest influence. But I'll tell you, what used to happen is we used to, a friend of mine had a big record collection, so we'd come home from school and uh, get stoned, and we'd listen to all these newest records that had just come out. And what really hooked me and my I want to do that moment was listening to songs like Be My Lover by Alice Cooper or Is It My Body? And Cooper was uh, produced by Bob Ezrin. And those records were just quintessential rock records. And it was also my first concert ever. If you can imagine Alice Cooper, Billion Dollar Babies with a guillotine and all that being your first concert experience. Yeah. You can probably imagine that that made a big impact on me. <laughs> yeah, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I was literally blown away for days. I bought the posters, much of it. You know, my mom was just aghast at the poster <laughs> with him wearing the tinfoil, you know, shirt and just, you know, it was crazy. But, you know, what I did was uh, I, I started playing and I borrowed a friend's acoustic. He showed me a few chords. Man, I just, uh, I asked for electric uh, for Christmas. I got a real cheap, you know, just a copy, but it was just good enough that I could, you know, uh, I didn't have an amp yet, but I, I got one later. And uh, within my first year of playing, I put together my first band. And then I went on to, I got a little better, a little better. I had a few mentors. Never had any classical training, but I got asked to play with better and better players that influenced me a lot and got me to the point where I was a band guy. <laughs> now this is all in the this is all mid early mid seventies, right? Sure. So uh, my family happened to live in Cal in uh, South Carolina at the time. And we moved back to California where I met, forgot to mention that I was born in San Diego. So we moved back to San Diego in 75. And I had a best friend who had also started playing uh, that we were best friends when we were kids. And we started a band together. And that was already my fourth band. And I'd only been playing for two years. So this really makes me feel old because what Chris just said. In 1974, I was already 20 years old <laughs> and wow. already been doing several bands and, yeah. and growing up playing rock and roll. I forgot to mention, you know, of course, Rainbow, which, you know, our mentor, Ronnie Dio, who um, he influenced me a lot, too. But anyway, go ahead, Chris. I'm so yeah. old. <laughs> so those were my uh, those were my early influences and. That's kind of how I started playing. It was just trial by fire. I'd come home from school and I would practice till dinner time. And then I'd, after dinner, I'd come down and practice again for another couple hours. You know, I just learned more and more chords and that's, that's how I learned to play guitar, man. Rewinding that cassette, you know, that cassette player. Right. You know, play, rewind, play, rewind. Right. <laughs> With me, it was an uh, album. And I had a set of headphones, and I'd put them on. I'd skip school 
And my neighbors would call my mother at work one day. I'm playing the Led Zeppelin. I'm beating them drums to death in our house. And next thing I know, I'm getting slapped upside the head because I was supposed to be in school. <laughs> like any good musician. I, I can second that, too, right? Yeah, so I want to definitely get into some of these stories and talk a little bit further about this. I think something that a lot of people don't know is, Chris, sort of your background, which is uh, you and Stephen Piercy formed the first version of Rat, which at the time was called Mickey Rat, right? That is correct. Absolutely. So when I moved back, I'll, I'll make this as concise as possible. When I moved back to uh, San Diego in 75, I had this one friend and who played guitar, and he just had a jam band. They'd go, and the big thing back then was keg parties, right? Right. And people's parents would leave, and there'd be, hey, there's a 10-kegger tonight or a 7-kegger, you know, uh, going on. You know, they'd ask us to come over and play for beer or whatever. So I was kind of dri- always been driven to do something a little bit more than that. So I said, hey, man, to my friend, who is a guy that the the three of us know, his name is Tommy Asakawa, who played in a band called Warrior for a while. And I said, hey, uh, listen, man, do you know any singers? He goes, well, he goes, I met this one guy down on the boardwalk named Steve. And uh, I said, okay, well, let's, let's get him over here, man. We need a singer, you know? And if we're going to make this into a band, so this guy shows up and of course it was Stephen Piercy. I mean, he looked, he had really long hair and he looked cooler than shit. He was real introverted. So we had set him up in the corner. We had a PA in the garage and all that. We couldn't really hear him too well, but you know, he hadn't, he was, he really wanted to be a guitar player is what he wanted to be, but he sort of got pigeonholed into being a singer and we couldn't really hear him, but we thought well, he looks cooler than shit. And he asked me for a ride home that day. And cause he just gotten dropped off. And I said, sure, man. So I gave him a ride home and the guy like came alive and gave me this rap about, Hey man, this can be done. And I'm like, what? You know, he's going, no man, this can be done. And he goes, man, we, we can make it, man. We can, we can be fucking putting cocaine on our cereal instead of sugar, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing. He was really, and he had this, you know, real sort of magnetic personality. And so we became fast friends. And so about a year after that, we splintered off from this band which was called crystal pistol, by the way. (laughs) And, uh, he had this idea there was a comic book called Mickey Rat. It was just with one P. And this guy was the antithesis of uh, Mickey Mouse. So he was like this real boozing, you know, womanizing, you know, get stoned character. So we based the band name on that. And we also sort of lived our lives to that code. <laughs> So uh, anyway, this is in San Diego. We played down there for a couple of years. We started getting a good following. We were playing some good venues. We graduated from, you know, keg parties to, uh, to, to real venues. And then right around uh, 79, Stephen said, hey, listen, if we're going to do anything, we need to, we need to move up to L.A. 
and he had lived up here before, and that kind of scared the shit out of me because I, I I'd never really been to L.A. back then. So it took me a couple months to cotton to that, but he talked me into it. So we packed up all our stuff in a couple of little cars. Our drummer had this little truck, and we moved into a garage that was sort of semi-fixed up into a room. And uh, David knows about that room because he played in there, too. And so we got an agent, and uh, we managed to start getting gigs up here in uh, Hollywood and all the clubs that were around back in the day. We didn't get to play places like the Whiskey till a little bit later on, but we did get to play the Starwood. Yeah. And I know Dave got to do that too, which was kind of a seminal place, but that's kind of how that got going. Yeah. Uh, so you guys got yourselves lined up with Ronnie James Dio in some way. How and when did Ronnie Dio come into play for the band because he had a lot to do with the band early on before you guys even got signed. It's like I said, Chris just mentioned, I used to be in rat too. And yeah, he's right. We used to rehearse in that garage that he's talking about. <laughs> uh, anyway, time went by. I uh, decided to leave rat and Jakey Lee came with me and we started a band. I met a singer, Paul you know, and we started a band called Rough Cut. Well, anyway, the Dio thing about it is, is um, I met Ronnie in Atlanta, Georgia, on Benny Apice's fifth gig on the Heaven and Hell tour. One a good friend of mine is Benny's big brother, Carmine, and Carmine gave me Benny's hotel number and room and told me to call him, and I did. Benny put all of us on the guest list because I was in a band which wound up being Max Havoc when I was in Atlanta, Georgia. So I go down and I meet Ronnie, okay? And I met the whole band, actually. And uh, anyway, to make the long story short, Ronnie gave me the number, his phone number and stuff, and we stayed in touch. And then year, a couple of years later, we're in L.A., we're playing, and we're doing showcases, and I invited him down. And uh, when he saw us, he loved us so much that his wife, Wendy, decided to manage us. And he plus, you know, I'm sure he had his own agendas, like he was looking at our guitar player, Jake, wanting to take him under his wing also, which didn't work out. Another story some other time. But I stayed in touch with Ronnie. We remained really good friends. And uh, he loved what I was doing so much to where he got his wife to manage us. And then turned that she got assigned to Warner Brothers and, you know, you know the rest. Yeah. But Ronnie yeah. did a big role in everything that we did. I mean, to be mm -hmm. honest with you, Chris can tell you the same thing. We really wish that Ronnie would have produced us. And he wanted to, but it was in conflict with the record that he was doing at the same time. So it just it, yeah. it didn't happen that way. And it's an interesting point you bring up. You brought up the point about how, you know, Ronnie might have been looking at uh, Jake Lee. And uh, there's a lot of stories and I've heard a lot of different things centered around that. But Rough Cut for a while, I mean, you guys were sort of synonymous with almost like 
I want to say a rock school for musicians because Rough Cut was like, oh yeah, home to Jakey Lee, home to Paul Shortino, home Craig Goldie, Craig Goldie, Claude Schnell, Claude Schnell. So all Craig Goldie, Jakey Lee, Amir Durock, Joey Cristofanelli, and the funny thing is, is it was sort of the same thing with rap. There was a very, it was a very sort of incestuous thing that was going on between it you know it was like we were all playing musical chairs swapping yeah. out musicians yeah, yeah that's right and rat with us too at the time when i was in the band it was jake and piercy and matt and me and a guy yeah. named bob DeMellis who wound up playing guitar for eddie money later on yeah. in life but chris is right it was definitely at musical chairs no doubt about yeah. it. Well, and I think that was the L.A. scene as a whole because, I mean, you can trace back a lot of different incestuous things going on in terms of band members. I mean, Guns N' Roses, L.A. Guns, Motley Crue, all this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of, I'm kind of giggling about that whole thing because the band that Chris and I eventually started before Rough Cut, everybody in the band with me, I'd gotten out of rap. <laughs> It was Chris Hager, uh, Matt Thorne, Bobby Mark. Uh, they were all in rap before they were in our band. <laughs> I didn't know Sorm was in rap. Yeah. Oh, Go ahead, Stephen. Oh, I just want to interject that, you know, he was saying, you know, all, all of these bands trading up partners, you know, I just thought it was funny because I was like, yeah, pretty much uh, anytime okay. I need, need somebody new, it's just like, well, let's go see what rats, let's go see who's playing in rap. Yeah. What happened with uh, Stephen and I was that I left rat as well, like David did, but before he did. And so uh, we used to, we used to be like the house band at Gazzari's, right? Right. So every other weekend we'd play there and Steven was in a band called Sexist. And so we'd all watch each other play and all that stuff. What happened is Steven and I started, you know, becoming friends and he became sort of unhappy in the situation he was in. And I was unhappy in the situation I was in. It just wasn't gelling uh, for me. So he and I decided to form this band called Sarge. And that's where we brought Matt Thor into the picture, who was also that's from San right. Diego. That's right. Matt was uh, in Rat at the time when that news came down. What Count just said to you, I can remember when we're in his in Stephen's room and he's firing Bob, and then I quit and Jake came with me. And I remember Stephen Piercy looking up at Rat and he goes, "Well, what are you going to do?" And he said, "Well, I'm going to go join Stars." And <laughs> I think I think Count and them had already mentioned to Matt. Why don't you come over and join Sarge? You know, yeah, so this yeah. was a perfect opportunity for him to bow out as well.
Yeah. So, Stephen, were you ever in any Sunset bands that had any kind of name recognition along the way? No, we uh, were in Sarge for about... Well, yeah, Sarge did. I mean, it's funny because I, I've seen a couple of the those uh, documentaries that come up, and I think the last one that I saw it was on uh, Amazon Prime. I think there were about three or four different mentions of Sarge in there, uh-huh. which I, I was like, hey, that's pretty cool. And then there's a photo. Um, yeah. And I've seen this photo yeah. in four different shows. Um, it was in uh, a couple of these that came from the 80s shows. And then I saw it on uh, back when VH1 used to be real popular, and they they would always play the um, behind the music for Metallica. And the picture it's a picture of the marquee at the Whiskey a Go Go, and the headlining act was Sarge, and then there was a band called Stormer, and then underneath that was Metallica. And this was when Chris and I hadn't been talking to each other for a long time. This is you know maybe in the nineties. And, you know, one day just out of the blue, Chris calls me and he goes, hey, did you see that Metallica show? I go, yeah. You talk about the photo? And he kind of chuckled. He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, if it weren't for that, he goes, goes, that photo might be the only um, testimony to the fact that we even existed as a band. Yeah. We had great material. We had a great group of people in the band, great power band, kind of a Judas Priest sort of thing. Yeah. And I think we were on the verge of jump. Yeah, yeah, we were on the verge of jumping I think we would have gotten we would have gotten signed. But yeah, if it Stephen, wasn't, it, tell them tell them a little bit about what happened to you. We were we've gotten to the point where we were we were headlining all the Sunset Strip clubs, the Whiskey a Go Go, the Troubadour, Country Club wasn't on the Sunset Strip, but it was a big club in uh, Reseda. We, uh, we had played out in Arizona. Just back then, to play out of state was kind of a big deal. So, you know, suddenly we we had become very popular. We had a lot of people filling up the place. Uh, we had a band open for us. And I honestly, I do not even remember the name of the band, but they had a guitar player. I remember him playing a white flying V and they opened for us on a Friday at the Troubadour. So, you know, we had a great show, went home, party, did whatever, met girls. But then on Saturday or Sunday, I remember phone rings at this apartment that we were staying in, Culver City. And I think it was Chris. He goes, hey, listen, there's a guy named How- Howard for you on the phone, Howie Rice. You know, kind of looks at me like, what's that? You know, and I was like, sure. You know, and I grabbed the phone. Howard Rice turned out he was the guitar player with the White Flying V that was in the band that opened for us. And Howard just flat out said, hey, listen, do you like Motown? I was like, well, yeah, I kind of grew up on Motown. And he says, great. Can you come by at Motown offices on Monday? And I was like, well, do you want me to? drive to Detroit. And he kind of chuckled. He says, uh, it's not in Detroit anymore. It's in Hollywood. It's a, the first interstate bank at Sunset Vine. It's the 23rd floor. He goes, just tell them your name. They'll let you in. So I thought, okay, I wonder what this is. Maybe it's some session work or something like that. And I got there and basically I walked in and they said, this is the guy. And they said, we love him. We love the look. We love the whole thing. I got signed with Motown. And I mean, it was within a couple of weeks. I had a contract had to tell the band guys, uh, I got to leave. And, you know, I think, you know, we laugh about this now, but back then I think that, you know, if there were knives involved, I probably would have been dead because we, we had a, <laughs> we had a good thing going. spec deal. Yeah, we, we did. We had a recording deal ready to go. And I, and I, I, I bowed out and ultimately, you know, I did some great work at Motown, but I mean, got to work with the temptations. I sang with the temptations. I got to sing with, Smokey Robinson, Junior Walker played sax on the album. And, you know, we were thinking this was going to go somewhere. I was the one that eventually got Mark Turin signed up into the music industry because they were looking for a guitar player at the time. 
And um, they're, Steve, we got rid of Howard Rice, the guy that got me in. And they're, can you find another rock guitar player? And he was like the only guy that I could find that was available. He's, yeah, I'll do it. Musical player. Yeah, pretty much. It's a, you know, there's almost not a guy from that era that wasn't tied in with a bunch of different people. But um, again, you know, I left for Motown. The album just kind of tanked, you know, after about a year and a half of work, a huge budget. I mean, like I said, they lavished us and the album still tanked. It's out there somewhere. The the windows changed, though, Steve. Yes, pretty much. Everything was changing. Rupert did a show at the Troubadour before Chris and Matt was in the band with the old guys, Jake and Claude and them, and Metallica opened for Rough Cut. But the Metallica I'm talking about still had Dave Mustaine. As- right. I mean, that's incredibly interesting. The Motown thing is really interesting because I was going to bring up Mark Torian because I knew that he had been in uh, Motown and in some band, which I can't remember the name of now. Was that the same project that you were in? Yes. What was the name of that thing? It was called Cagney and the Dirty Rats. That was the project. Yep, that's it. And I loved that name. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, yeah, I was I was supposed to be Cagney, and the band was supposed to be the Dirty Rats. Again, it was just, I, I think it was an exercise for uh, the two producers, who one of them was Barry Gordy's stepson. You know, the other one, the other manager, he's kind of an iconic manager now, but he does like Mariah Carey and, you know, Jennifer Lopez. His name's Benny Medina. That's a trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you got, you got a real rich history here. I mean, this is just, this is just a piece of it, but yeah. It's funny for me, for me also, because besides Mark Turin later on, you know, after Motown, you know, I ended up starting a band called St. James, had Mark Turin basically tell me he was going to be in the band. It's like, well, you're not going to get anybody else in that band. I'm going to play guitar. And we lasted about a year and a half before we parted company. And the next guy that I brought in ended up being C.C. DeVille. (laughs) (laughs) And Lonnie Vincent of the Bullet Boys uh, was the bass player at the time. And that's how Mark and Lonnie met. Wow. I'm telling you, Stephen, it's musical chairs, like you said. Yeah, the West Coast, yeah. uh, the West Coast definitely had it going on at the time. I was going to ask you, Stephen, whether you were in some way, shape, or form uh, related to Jamie St. James from Black and Blue. No, <laughs> I don't know if he recalls this, but we used to joke about our names, you know. And um, I don't know if J- I don't know if St. James is his real last name because if you go on social media, you're going to see a lot of. Uh, me as Santiago, yeah. and in English, Santiago just translates out to James or St. James, and that's it. For me, it was kind of a no-brainer because everybody like wanted to have a cool name that they used, and that became mine. That was just but, a, a... but yeah, yeah, I, I, I think uh, Chris and I had done some shows with Black and Blue. Nice guys, really nice guys. And Jamie was, you know, again, good singer, fun, fun guy, really nice person. Well, I think Nicky kind of the one that trended that even though other people would do different names uh when motley Crue before their record deal and uh, we know all them guys and the only one that was using their real name was tommy lee and vince neal the rest of them were doing uh you know come on nick mars and nikki six and so it got trendy people started changing their names oh god yes Right. Well, let's face it. I mean, stage names have been around since the inception of, you know, entertainment. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. yeah. But, uh, 
Yes. Speaking of uh, Motley Crue, uh, Nikki used to come see us and we were, you know, friends at the time. We would all hang out on the, on the strip in front of Cazares, the whiskey, you know, oh. we'd hang out at the Troubadour. And uh, he was an inspirational guy, man. He used to invite uh, me and Matt over to his place and uh, he liked our band and he was he was always a real cool guy to us, you know inspirational let me ask you this so speaking of stage names when you guys were on the road and touring did you guys ever use fake names to check into the hotel room if so give me some of the best uh names you used (laughs) they're all trendy now anyone that i can think of everybody's heard like p and o or Ben Dover, you know, stuff like that. That, that they, They've been around for it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Bob Rappels. Right, right. That's a good one. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'll tell you, you know, the biggest place where we had to do that was we went to Japan a couple of times. And Japan is a whole different story. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we literally... You want to yeah. tell our first? Oh, yeah. Well, you can tell them about David had a little incident. Let him tell you about it. We were on our first time to Japan, and we did our show. And after all of it was done, we go back to our hotel, and we go. I go up to my door, and it's locked from the inside. Open the door, and it won't open because it's locked from the inside. A fan somehow conned somebody into letting her into my room, and she was laying in my bed with a brush of mine, holding it close to her like it was precious or something, and they were going to put her in jail. I had to uh, you know, intervene and tell them, no, I wanted her here, and all kinds of stuff was, was all crap. Wasn't she, she brushing her nether parts? Well, it got, listen, listen, it gets worse. She followed us back to America, not that night, but within about a month or so, I'm going up to my house and there's stuff in front of the door that like, like food and, oh. and Japanese yeah. stuff set up and everything. It followed me. I was being stopped. Wow. So, That's crazy. Well, you know, while we were there, the Japanese culture is crazy because I mean, we weren't used to that kind of attention and adulation where when we pulled into the airport, there were four or 500 fans, you know, waiting for us. Every morning when when we'd come out of our hotel rooms, there'd be 50 to 100, uh, mostly females, down in the lobby, and they would each have a little gift for us, whether it was just a little letter or some little trinket. And we'd go out to eat. We'd have about 20 or 30 of them following us. And uh, it was, uh, you know, (laughs) that was an experience, you know. That's rock and roll. That's what you were in it for. Come on. Yeah, man. (laughs) You know, of course, you make the case everybody's big in Japan, but that was a fun thing for us. And, you know, it was... uh, Got a, we got a little spoiled after that, I think. Right. <laughs> well, we did because uh, our, our second trip to Japan, we were doing the Super Rock Festival with Foreigner and Sting and Dio and, you know, a bunch of bands. But we were kind of seasoned because we had been to Japan already, you know. Yeah. yeah but it was, it was still crazy. It was still crazy, the culture. 
I'll tell you one thing about Japan that I love. They are very meticulous about getting things right. Yeah. That's right. So let's uh let me go through your records real quick with you. I got a few questions that center around the first uh first two records. Originally on your debut, you guys get signed with Warner Brothers. Everybody knows the story. Originally, Ted Templeman is set to produce the record. And if I'm not mistaken, he's the guy that actually signed you guys, right? That's correct. correct. Yeah. He wasn't the A&R guy, but he's the guy that went to Felix Chamberlain and got Mo Austin to say, okay, and yeah. sign off. Yeah, we did it. We basically, let me interject for just a second here. We did a showcase okay. at, what was it, Dave? Six or it's eight Burbank. in the morning? Burbank Studios. Yeah, but it was like six or seven o'clock in the morning, which yeah, was really fucking early. And it was Ted like, Templeman, his, uh, his sister. Yes. And I think. Four women with him. Yep. And uh, of course, Ted had the. Uh, you know, the power to make the final decision on it. So uh, he's the one that uh, signed us. And I remember him taking us into the Warner Brothers, uh, you know, uh, building and giving us a tour and telling us about, you know, the history of Warner Brothers. And uh, it was it was quite a deal for us. It was quite a it was quite a big deal. Yeah. So he originally signed you. It's interesting that you say he had his sister along with him, because I know that I've read plenty of stories where Ted bought his sister out to see Van Halen before before he signed Van Halen. So he was he was the one that was going to produce the debut, but he was producing Van Halen and David Lee Roth and everything was going That's on at right. the time. So you guys ended up with Tom Allum, who Tom, I mean, Tom was a great producer. He did Judas Priest. Do you think ultimately the debut would have been much different had Ted produced it instead? I want to I want to answer that. Instead of it being the way you're saying it, what would have made it different is that we would have been earlier. If Ted mm-hmm. would have just taken us right into the studio, then we would have came out at the same time with the what did they call it, Chris? A West Coast metal wave or something? Yeah, uh, our, yeah. our records would have came out with Rat, with Motley, with Quiet Riot. All of that stuff would have been within the same couple of months around each other but instead we wound up sitting on our record deal for over waiting two. almost a year yeah yeah so i understand exactly what you're saying there dave i don't think that you guys were so far behind that like you guys didn't get caught up in the in the grunge movement you guys weren't 89 90 which uh you know kind of uh shelved a lot of bands you guys were when did that first record come out what was the debut uh date of that first record november 12 84 november 12 1985 okay and i want to say november on november 11th 1985 mtv announced no more rock videos really everything went to fill up cindy cindy lopper madonna you know what i'm saying it changed yeah no more rock video i didn't realize that happened so early because i graduated so just to give you an idea of my age i graduated in 84 so i'm 53 well (laughs) (laughs) yeah Just so you know, though, back in those days, 
like Ronnie, Ronnie actually has documented about it. Some people feel that MTV was the beginning of the downfall because as MTV took over the airwaves, radio kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And trust me when I tell you this, if you didn't have a video out there on MTV kicking ass along with your radio airplay, you lost everything. Yeah. You had to have the video. You had to. And when we did videos, but it was too late. Yeah, we did have a we did have a video on rotation on MTV for about six weeks, but it just wasn't enough. I a hundred percent believe what you're saying there. Yeah, I mean you had to have both back in those days, and I totally get that. That's right. And you guys really didn't lean towards like I never really considered you guys a glam band. To me, that wasn't what you were. You were a straight-ahead hard rock band. I saw you guys, I want to say over the course of your history, I think I saw the band somewhere around three times. I saw you once. Oh, really? Yeah, I saw you once early on in Los Angeles, I want to say at the Country Club. Oh, yeah. uh, Because I had friends that lived in L.A. I went out to visit and took in the whole Sunset Strip thing, and I think you guys were playing a show at the Country Club on the weekend and I went and I saw you there because I'd heard of the band. I want to see it. Then I saw you guys once in Atlanta opening up for Dio on probably what sacred heart tour, right? At the Omni. At the Omni. Omni. Yep. That's right. So I saw you guys there and then I saw you later on. It was you guys and Alcatraz Alcatraz. That was our second record tour. Yeah, it was with uh, um, uh, it's when Alcatraz had. I think the guy's name was Danny Johnson playing guitar. Uh, it was after, and Graham Bonnet. Yep, it Danny was after Johnson and Graham Bonnet. Yep, yeah. it was after Steve Vai, after Ingve, and I saw you guys in a club in Destin, Florida. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Destin, Florida. I remember, remember that. that. It was called, I, I want to say it was something like called like Night Town or something. I lived in the Panhandle at the time and I saw you guys were coming. So I made the trip to Destin. I saw you guys and I think that was the first night I might have met. Fun yeah, I might have met uh, Wendy Dio. I don't know whether she was on the road with you guys at the time. I have no idea, but I think that I met her that night as well. She'd come on the road off and on with us, you know. We used to have a standing joke that uh, we'd be on the bus, we'd leave one town, be headed to the other town, and an airplane would go over the top, and we'd <laughs> say, well, there goes Paul Andy. <laughs> and when we were, but uh, yeah, you probably met her because she used to frequently come out on the road with us. Yeah. So that's my history with the band. Here's a few more questions that I have centered around this first record. So you guys do a a song called A Little Kindness and Used and Abused, both which end up on this best unsigned bands. Both songs are produced by Dio, but neither one of these songs makes the first record. They didn't make the cut because when we sat back and Ted was involved, everybody was involved the song Dreaming Again that got him to sign us, when we picked for those songs, we actually picked out of maybe, what was it, Chris, a 30, 40 songs? Something, something like that. Like that. Yeah, and then probably 30. There was a, those songs were in the pile. They got passed over because they had keyboards in them 
and a few other things that just didn't match. They, they didn't represent. Yeah, they didn't represent what we were doing by that time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned Dreaming Again, and I think Dreaming Again, that's the one that uh, Wendy Dio co-wrote, right? Well, she came up with a she came up with a line or two. Let's put it that way. Yes. Okay. So right. so so this sounds like <laughs> this sounds like a little give and give. Uh, which is exactly what I exposed it for in my own head when I started reading about these things. So she gets a songwriting credit. Dio gets a couple of writing credits. Sure. He has a lot to do with the band early on. I mean, there's just some things with this first record that are interesting to me. Another thing that stands out is there's two cover songs on the first album that only has 10 songs to begin with. What's up with that? Well, well back, uh, back that then. was basically not our choice. That was uh, that was Warner, Warner Brothers. Brothers. They're the ones that wanted us to do Never Gonna Die. It was our idea, not theirs, to do Peace of My Heart. Yeah. And it was our idea, if you're a musician, you can tell that the chorus musically is the song Wild Thing. Yeah. We introverted with Peace of My Heart. Yeah. That's the second cover. We really, back then, 10 songs was the going rate on an LP. You wouldn't hardly ever find more than 10. Yeah, I think all you needed was eight, really. Yeah. To make it in the contract. Well, and to be honest, I actually love that. You guys' first record, 10 songs, 38 minutes, I think, was the running time of that record. I'm good with that. No Inagata DeVita. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's why they put the drum solo on it. It's because it was too long and they had to do something. (laughs) I listened to that Choir Boys cover for the first time today. First of all, I didn't even know it was a cover song. And I've never heard of that band in my life. It was a different, different Choir Boys. That's an Australian band. Oh, I know. Yeah, I I know exactly who it is. I know uh, that's what I'm telling you. Like, I know it's not the London Choir Boys or the Choir Boys. It's it's this band from Australia. I went and I dug up this Mm -hmm. greatest hits and I listened to Never Gonna Die their their version of it, which is it's not that far off from what you guys ended up doing. At least I didn't think so. We just made it a bit heavier. We rough yeah. yeah, of course. You know, with more uh, up-to-date recording and, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And let me interject here that, number one, I just want to put kudos out to our, you know, our time working with the D.O.s, both Ronnie and Wendy. You know, I do, and I know Dave does, too. We have the ultimate respect uh, for both of them. And Ronnie, uh, you know, uh, may he rest in peace, was a big mentor for David and for myself. You know, Wendy, uh, she gave us a lot of opportunities back then. So we have nothing but good things to say about them. Things happen the way they happen. But you know what? Working with Tom Allum, because we were all big Judas Priest fans, and he had done... You know, Tom had also done Black, Black Sabbath. Sabbath. He uh, engineered the first Def Leppard record. Yep. And so we were down with Tom Allen once we figured out we couldn't get Ted. It's like we were excited about working with Tom. 
if you listen to the Black Widow mix, that is a masterful mix mm-hmm. that he did on that.
So, you know, we're not sorry about that. What we do wish would happen is that would have happened was that we could have done that earlier before radio changed and then changed back again. Yeah. You know, I honestly believe that what Chris is saying could have made the difference because I always thought that uh, I'm I'm looking back. And when you listen to the songs that were on the radio back then in 1985, if Dreaming Again would have came out, it would have flew. I know it would have been huge. And Black Widow also. But instead, none of that stuff came out till a year later, and we missed the boat. Music is 100% timing. I mean, we, we all know that, right? It's a time That's and a right. place. Let me ask the three of you this separately. So you guys, you've been around. You know the first two records. Tell me, which record do you actually prefer? I mean, because I personally, I have a clear favorite in the two records, and I'll even tell you why. But let's start with you, Chris. What is it about the first two records, Want Some and, and uh, the debut? Which, which do you prefer? Well, first, let me start off by saying that we know for a fact that most of our fans prefer the first record. So, but as far as my own, you know, my own private preference, they were really... It was kind of you. It was kind of you. Really couldn't compare them. Couldn't compare them as apples and apples because they were very different records. I'd say the first one is a little bit more quintessential and original. The second one, I have a lot of. I have a lot of songs that I like on that too. But I'd probably go with the first one. Okay. How about you, Stephen? As a fan. As a fan, and I was. <laughs> Hands down, the first album. Yeah. Now, there's something interesting about the second album, and that is that there is, and it's not documented, but there's a piece of me on that album. Chris and I actually penned an earlier version of You Want to Be a Star. Chris and I had wrote wrote a song, um, I Want to Take You Down, and it's essentially that song with different lyrics. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, that part, my heart went out to that. I was like, oh, shit, that's us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which yeah. I thought was kind of, I, I thought that was kind of cool. And then, you know, later on their anthology, Prowler, Chris and I also wrote that with uh, Matt. But, you know, you're talking about the first two albums. Hands down for me, it would have been the first album as a fan. Okay. Dave? Well, to me, the word rough cut means rough or hard cuts, you know, differences in the records. I took pleasure in realizing that each record was completely a different opposite of the other one. I'm going to throw in real quick on this subject. That's why we're so excited about our new lineup and our new music, because then again, it's going to be a rough cut. We've always strive to have different we don't want to repeat ourselves we try to do things differently so for the first two records i'm gonna have to say that i like them both just as equal i really am because the second record had a lot of soul in it and then the Mm -hmm. first record had a lot of metal in it and then Mm -hmm. the second record had a lot of melody compared to the first record so there was a lot of things in there that, that I love from both of them. And I really, really, really loved working with Jack Douglas. Yeah. So. Yes. 
Okay. He was the quintessential part of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an amazing point you bring up, right? You not only work with Tom Alone, but you also work with Jack Douglas, who if people aren't familiar with Jack Douglas, then, you know, I don't know what to do with you, but Jack Douglas, Aerosmith, <laughs> Aer- Aerosmith biggest thing, right? John uh, Lennon, dude. Among other yeah. things. But, Aerosmith, John Lennon, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just amazing, amazing. I mean, he produced Aerosmith Rocks, man. Yeah, buddy. And Toys in the Yeah, and Toys in the Attic, which are some of the most, to me, in the top 10 quintessential rock records ever made yeah that album came out when i graduated high school and that that was one of those run to the record store and pick that album up when i was a kid you know uh, just just graduating (laughs) yeah you're gonna love this when axis broke up in shreveport rick derringer came down to shreveport to steal Vinny. he Vinny wound up playing with danny after me yeah well when he came in and he heard danny to make the long story short once they two boys got into Derringer's band. I got to see them. They opened up for both of those records. Derringer did the whole Toys in the Attic tour. Then they did the whole Rocks tour. And that's back when I met Steven Tyler and all the guys, you know, and Aerosmith. And like Steve St. James just said, I can remember almost the same thing when Rocks came out. There was a line in the record store. Yeah. A line. People trying to get in there to get those records. Those records influenced me a lot too. Just mm-hmm. there, and then no one brought up Hendrix either, but he played a big role also. Well, there were there were a lot of greats back then, that's for sure. For me, just to go back to the second record, I know you said that the fans prefer the first record, but I think I'm the exception to that. I actually prefer the second record. Now, let me explain myself. There are things I like on the first record. There's no doubt. I I like a lot of stuff on the first record. But for me, personally, it doesn't sound quite as cohesive. And it's a little bit up and down in tempo. Whereas the second record is just more kind of straight ahead, melodic hard rock, which I prefer. That's do, true. You, do you mean when you say up and down in tempo, or are you talking about by the style of music, how there'd be a fast song and then a ballad, or do you mean that the drummer was speeding up and slowing down? <laughs> no, no rock and Dave. It wasn't your tempo. Your your tempo's fine. It it was the latter of the two, which is yes, it's 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 ballady, it's slow, it's it's fast. Hey man, I had to ask. Yeah, no, you're you're good, Dave. I'm guessing that they probably, even if you weren't good in the studio, they could fix that. Well, I will tell you this. You're the boy Tom Allen from Judas Priest. Yeah. Our first record when we had a metronome and I would uh, get the count and then we would just go from there. And what Tom did was they did what they called the stopwatch method. Yeah. And I'm not to pat myself on the back, but he came to me and he says, you know, you're so close. So a human ear can't hear if it was a little faster, a little lower, because you came within hundreds of a second. Hundreds, he says, of being exactly the same as the previous chorus. And that was without a click track. So I am patting myself <clears throat> back now. <laughs> Why do you think they call you Rockin' Dave? I don't know. 
Now, I don't do know if it's because of that or not. But. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I like the second album uh, quite a bit, and that's that's sort of Good. why. Good. There are some pretty neat we, stuff on the second that. album. Yeah. There is. Absolutely. Uh, They're different more than anything. Whether you, To me, saying one is better than the other uh, is not the right way to look at it you're right they're just it's just a preference on style you know yeah you're 100 percent right i never usually i'll never ask a band you know to give me their favorite song or whatever because they're all kind of like your kids and i get that uh but rough cut wants you you guys all had a hand for the most part in writing every one of those songs and to me, it sounds like a band record versus the first record that has two cover songs on it and just is a little bit, it slows and it speeds and it slows and it speeds. I like the pace of the first of the second record and it just takes me through. So that's, that's why I, I bought that up. Well, it had, uh, it had a lot more uh, mid-tempo rock groove on it than the first record. The first record was more of a plodding, sort of a less groove-oriented, didn't have a lot of mid-tempo stuff. It was either real fast or it was slow. The second record was a little bit more cohesive in terms of rockability, you know? I, I think as a fan, because, you know, I wasn't on either of those albums, <laughs> I think as a fan, you shook your fist into the air at the first album or, you know, kind of thumped your head and the second album you kind of danced to <laughs> i was going to bring up that jack played a big role in that vibe that you get from the second record not to mention don't forget chris remember we did we used three studios we tracked we half of it at one-on-one -on -one, then we tracked the other half of it at crystal and crystal then we wound and doing vocals at the record. We did some overdubs at Fiddler's, yeah, which is no longer. Right. A lot of different studios involved, a lot of talent, because I forgot to mention, too, that when we got Jack Douglas, when we were asked what engineer we would want, unanimously, all of us wanted the Aerosmith team back together, and Jack yeah. got Dave Messina to do it with him, and they That's had right. worked together sent Aerosmith until Rufka. That's right. But they had done those three or four quintessential uh, Aerosmith records together. And that we figured that was an unbeatable team right there. And it That's was. Right. We looked at the engineering on the second record. Jay oh, right. was a very precise, talented engineer. Right.
All right, so let's let's head for what's going on with the band now. So I want to talk about the new lineup. Obviously, Stephen, you're part of this new lineup. You are the singer taking Paul Shortino's place. I don't know. Maybe you guys can explain to me. So I started keeping up with what was going on with Rough Cut about, I don't know, a few years back, you guys played a show on the Monsters of Rock Cruise. I want to say that was 2018. We did 2016 and 2018, actually. Okay, so 2018 was basically the original band back together and playing. And then I saw where you guys were breaking off and doing Rough Riot with Carlos Cavazzo, and it was the band minus Amir and... Matt. Matt. Minus Amir and uh, and Matt. Okay. The Rough Riot thing is self-explanatory. You got five guys. Right. Two guys from Quiet Riot, two guys from Rough Cut, and the singer that was in both bands. That's Rough Riot. Yeah. That was the rationale. And that made sense. And it looked like you guys were gearing up for a push. And then all of a sudden, I see that you and Chris, Chris and Dave, you guys broke off and basically are putting Rough Cut back together with a completely new lineup. What all went on there? Well, without getting into too much detail, basically with that lineup, I think everybody sort of had their own agenda. And um, it just didn't click. It's not that we didn't like each other. We did. And we were all old friends, as a matter of fact. But it just didn't click. The chemistry wasn't there. And it didn't click. So, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where everybody had their own agenda and it wasn't a band. Yeah, it basically put Paul Shortino in the middle. Okay, because. He could lean over here and it'd be quiet riot stuff. He could lean over here and be rough cut stuff. And it just didn't click. It wasn't going to work. Right. We thought it might, but just it didn't work. You know, Stephen St. James is the one that works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Stephen St. James, you guys go back to Stephen. And of course, we already visited the history there with he and Chris playing in Sarge together. Steven, you're back and you're playing with these guys. How do you feel about the new lineup? What's working for you? When I left music, it was around 1988. I was like, I'm done. I, I, I'm, you know, getting into paramedic training, uh, you know, and then somehow I end up in a cover band and uh, get hurt. I'm out of paramedic training. My dad said, hey, why don't you come, you know, work with me? Got an insurance insurance agency running. I did that forever. You know what I mean? I left music, didn't want to do it. I got married. My wife spent 14 years trying to talk me back into singing. No, I got kids. No, I got this. No, I got that. You know what I mean? I just sure. completely tried to avoid it. At about 45 years old, she was in my ear all the time, in my ear all the time. You know, you're not done. You're not trying to get signed. You're not trying to be famous, but you're good. People like listening to you sing. You should sing again. So on purpose, I took out an ad and I put my age in there thinking nobody's going to ask an old fart to sing. <laughs> three weeks later it's like what you know so i start working again along the way i'm playing down in san diego and there's a lady and she's a mutual friend of chris and i and this is before facebook and myspace or any of that and she puts the two of us together mm-hmm. so we start talking and you know kind of buried the hatchet about me leaving and i told him i said look you know you know since we're hanging out i need to you know get the you know the 800 pound gorilla 
out of the, you know, in the room, just, I need to get that out and air it out. I got to apologize to you. You know, and he says, yeah, we were pretty pissed at you. And he goes, you know, I mean, we had a good thing going and, you know, he goes, we, we want to do it together. He goes, but in retrospect, I, I think I would have done the same thing. You know, we're all hungry. We're all trying to get somewhere. So he didn't want to have anything to do with music, but we stayed friends. We stayed talking. I just, I was playing cover bands. Then he left on tour with uh, Piercy again. Uh, Chris, how many? That was like almost two oh, years. Uh, two thousand twelve. I started playing with uh, Stephen again, and I played with him up till about uh, two thousand sixteen, seventeen. So uh, right. Yeah, so then Matt Matt had re you know Matt had kind of recut that Sar GP, put it out on Demon Doll Records, and you called me from Ohio somewhere. You know, I was I was living in Fountain Valley. I live in Orange County, out in Huntington Beach now. At the time, I was living in Fountain Valley, and he calls me from Ohio somewhere, and I'm with a couple of friends at the apartment, and um, he says, "Hey, you know, do you have the uh, EP?" And I was like, "No." And I said, uh, "You know, not yet." And he goes, "Well, you, you know, you got to get it." I said, "Yeah, I intend to buy it." He goes, "Dude, you know, you're you're involved in this. You know, you wrote this stuff. You're not going to buy it. I'm going to send it to you." And literally within about three days, I get a package in the mail from wherever he happened to be. And it was the ET and it just, it kind of brought back the memories and stuff. So we would chat every once in a while. How's it going? How, you know, Hey, what's going on? You know what I mean? We just started being friends again. And then about what, Chris, about three years ago, you mm-hmm. call me up and say, Hey, would you like to start writing some songs with me again? Like, yeah, less than that. Because in 2016, we're doing the monsters of rock cruise. Oh, okay. 2016, we did the monsters of rock cruise. Yeah, maybe two years. Yeah. yeah. And then it's uh, rough riot stuff. So as far as writing again, was probably probably around 2018. Okay. That that, that might be right. But we we got together and we started writing. He goes, look, some of this stuff will probably be for rough riot. Some of it will be for us. You know, Um, it's like, sure. Because I, I like to write. When I was at Motown, you know, even though I was an artist, I was getting paid to be a staff writer for Motown at the time. And he knew that I knew how to write songs. Uh, you know, I was I was a lyric and melody guy. So he would give me something. I would whip out a song 15 minutes, you know, 15 minutes later, we're sitting there on Pro Tools recording. And we got... I was the instrumental out. guy. He was the book guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we got, what, about 14, 15, 16, maybe more, you know, songs or partial songs that we put together. I and did. Yeah. And then, you know, I would hear phone calls between the two, you know, between them and Paul and whatever. And, you know, it's just like laughing at him going, how how is this going to work, man? You know, you guys got to gel. You guys got to gel. I ended up getting sick. I think this was last year. I got diverticulitis. I ended up in the hospital. And um, I think he calls me the day before I'm released. He goes, look, I know this is a bad time. He goes, but when you get home and you feel better, I, I need you to call me. There's been a development. So I call him and, you know, the next day it's like, what's going on, man? And he goes, uh, you know, we pulled the plug. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So he goes, goes, we pulled the plug on a Friday. He goes, just people aren't, you know, it's not working. It's like, okay, that's fine. It was what you would call an amicable split, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we just kind of focused on getting stuff written and thinking, well, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to call this? And I, I still play in, you know, cover bands for fun. And I'm in Huntington Beach, you know, and I'm loading up equipment onto the stage and I turn around and there's Dave standing two feet in front of my face. I was like, he lives in Porter Ranch, which is maybe two hours away by freeway. <laughs> you know, 
what are you doing here? You know, and he goes, man, I came to see you. I was just like, he goes, if we're going to do this, and I go, who's we? You know, and he goes, me and you and Chris. And I'm like, okay, so we're a thing now. And he goes, yeah. And it was just, it was that easy. So he sat with my wife, you know, and they sat and watched me do a set. And he, he watched me do a set and a half. And then, you know, he came up to me, he goes, hey, listen, I got to go. He goes, I got a long drive back. He goes, but I love it. And he goes, you're great. You're still the guy that you were all the way back then. He goes, it's just, you know, you're a lot of fun to watch. You should have seen his face when I asked him the magic question. I said, so how do you feel about doing it again and uh, being rough cut? He was like, wow. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I was sold on him. And when he said he would love to be in rough cut, I went back to Chris and we said, yeah, absolutely. And the rest, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. I gotta ask because this is this is an important question these days. I have to assume that one or both of you guys own the name Rough Cut now, right? No. Nope. Well, it's not <laughs> we own quite the that right. simple. We own the rights to the merchandising, but they, as far as owning the title, you can't copyright a title. You can only trademark a title. And without getting off into it, there's a record label now from Europe or somewhere it's called Rough Cut. So, but there's we a lot of Rough Cuts out there. there. Yeah. I guess the reason I ask is because obviously you guys see the news, you know what's going on out there. Is there going to be Paul Shortino's Rough Cut? Is there going to be, you know, I mean, are there going to be two or three different Rough Cuts on the road or playing Monsters of Rock Cruise? We doubt no. it, but can tell you this. If that does happen, it would have to be the way you said it. They oh. can't go out and be rough cut. Okay. They have to go out and be Matt Thorne's rough cut or Amir DeRock's rough cut or something because we own the merchandise rights. Okay. And so nobody can sell anything with that name on it except for us. Perfect. Yeah. And, you know, they're all, they're all doing their own thing anyway, and we're not real worried about that. And, and, you know, we wish them, we wish them all the best too. You know, it's like, yeah, uh, we, we just did what we had to do. You know, that's all. Okay. Well, basically it boils down to two things. Stephen St. James is a great singer. Count and Rock and Dave wants to keep playing. So we had to get another singer. Okay. And yep. I saw no reason and not continuing with Rough Cut because that's a marquee name. Sure. Well, you we're don't, brothers. You don't throw that we're away. Brothers we love each other. We write together. Uh, so there was it was a no-brainer for me and Chris. Well, them guys didn't want to do anything anymore. We had, in fact, I'm going to quote Chris for a second. We gave everybody else ample opportunities for us to continue going on. But like Chris said, everybody else had other things and different agendas. So our fans are starving to still hear our music. So we decided to pick up the torch and run with it. Perfect. I got no issues with that. So let's talk about new music. Are we going to have new music in the future? Yes. Oh, a bunch of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Remember what yes. Stephen James just told you? He said, yeah, it takes me about 15 minutes to crank one out. So there's your answer. <laughs> All right. Because I think if you guys have material, there are more than enough outlets to take that and run with it. There are great independent record labels out there. There's great labels like Frontiers that mm -hmm. keeps flying the flag for rock and roll. So 
time frame? Do we have a time frame on something like this? Here's where we're at right now. We're, we're still writing. We've got a bunch of songs. We're getting ready to go and to pick the songs that we're going to do. We're going to start off probably with an EP, and we're going to do a video. We're shopping studios right now, and we're writing songs. And we have a new manager. And we have a new manager. Yes, that's right. Scully Coley. Scully Coley Entertainment. He's a good dude. That's right. And uh, we're real happy to have Scully on board. He's, uh, we think he's a, uh, we think he's a real, you know, uh, important addition to the family. And uh, we feel that he's uh, got our best interest in mind. And uh, he's real straight up with us, which is what we want. I'm excited. So what kind of plans do we have then for shows? I know nobody really goes on tour, so to speak, but you guys certainly plan some one-offs and maybe like a... Yeah, there'll be fly-outs. Look for something, you know, uh, probably uh, in the spring and uh, probably uh, be starting off around the Atlanta area and uh, doing some shows around there. Yeah, we're, we're real happy so far with, 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 with what's going on. So, All right, guys. Well, so that brings us to the end. We look forward to uh, hearing some new Rough Cup music. We hope to see you guys playing some shows here and there. One thing I got to ask is the best place for people to find out what's going on with Rough Cut. Is there a place where people can go to find out any kind of tour dates you're playing and the latest on when they can uh, listen to new music? Yeah, we've got a website. It's not up yet, but the the place to go right now is just go to our page on Facebook. Perfect. I'll tie the link to your Facebook page in our show notes for the episode. Great. Excellent. All right, guys. So what we like to do is we like to play a song to take us out of here. Why don't you guys pick a rough cut tune to play us out? Play You Want to Be a Star because... Something we do now, and it involves Stephen St. James. So, yeah. All right. You want to be a star? Off a of rough cut wants you. See ya. See ya. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys. Fall it out, be 
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.